to the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast. Hi, this is Shane Vanderhart. Welcome back to another episode. On today's podcast, I spoke with Dr. Ekal Beisner. Uh, he is the national spokesperson and founder of Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. He and I talked about uh, an accusation that's been thrown around a lot. Well, it's been thrown around for years, especially with climate change. Do conservative Christians deny science? And this, uh, this accusation has reared its ugly head again when we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. So he and I discussed a, uh, an article in the New York Times that appeared that specifically addressed him. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. Cal, welcome to the Caffeinated Thoughts podcast. Thank you very much, Shane. Great to be back with you. Hey, um, in the New York Times, there was an op-ed written that singled your organization out, um, Cornwall Alliance, uh, and and the subtitle to the to the article uh, by Catherine Stewart was Trump's response to the pandemic has been hampered by by the science denialism of ultra conservative religious uh, allies. So. Why do you deny That's science? Yeah, why do you deny <laughs> science, Cal? Well, haven't you noticed that my knuckles drag on the ground when I walk? <laughs> uh, no, uh, we don't deny science. And if, uh, if Catherine Stewart had spent any time at all on our website, she would have discovered that. She would have discovered, for example, that, uh, that out of our almost 70 different scholars in the Cornwall Alliance Network, Almost a third are natural scientists, including some of the world's top climate scientists. Uh, if she had bothered to go to the document that, uh, that lies beneath the declaration that she quoted uh, and misrepresented, uh, she would have found that, <clears throat> that we had a, a strong chapter on the science of climate change in that document, written by one of the world's top climate scientists, assisted by, other, by nine other scientists, Yes. Uh, she would have just found all kinds of science all over our website. Uh, but instead, she, she wrote that we had, quote, produced a declaration asserting as a matter of theology that there is no convincing scientific evidence that human contribution to greenhouse gases is causing dangerous global warming. Well, no, we didn't present that as a matter of theology. We produced it as a matter of good science. Yeah, yeah, it's. It, I, I have discussions with people all the time about climate change, and it's not my my area of expertise. Um, and I'll say you know certain things like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll admit there's you know climate changes. Um, I question how much of it's man made. I question how much it's really changed. I question is it going to be actually catastrophic? And then you know I bring up it's like. You, you talk to me about being a science denier, but, you know, oftentimes those who, who promote climate change or, or climate change advocacies, advocates, I mean, um, they, they deny, you know, certain da data that's not convenient for them, like the satellite temperatures and other things. So Yeah, uh, yeah or they just change the data, which is what NASA has been doing. Uh, NASA and NOAA both have been taking old data sets from actual temperature readings uh, running back over 100 years and putting them through various algorithms. And the result is to uh, 
push earlier readings down from what the readings actually were and later readings up from what the readings actually were. And the result is the, the impression of a more rapid uh, and greater magnitude of warming over that period than the actual readings themselves show. And they do this despite the fact that, uh, that there is no, no good reason for it. I mean, do, do some temperature measurements err from time to time? Yes, of course they do. And there are reasons to attempt to homogenize data over long periods of time and from a wide variety of places. But the mistakes that you find in those data tend to be actually random. Uh, but what we're seeing in these homogenizations uh, being done now is that consistently the earlier readings are being supposedly corrected downward and the later readings are being supposedly corrected upward. What's well, if indeed this was only a matter of mistakes, the, the changes should have been uh, completely random, some up, some down. Uh, and basically even across the board through, through the time. What's NASA's explanation for this? <laughs> uh, they very carefully ignore those who point this out. Uh, um, there's uh, Tony Heller has a blog site, Real Climate Science, uh, in which he has put up uh, graph after graph after graph showing uh, exactly what NASA has done. And NASA just ignores it. Man, man. Um, so t you know, looking back at the article, too, and I skimmed through it, and it's just like, this is just absolute garbage. Because her proof <laughs> her proof is she, she quotes a bunch of pastors, I'm using that word loosely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's like, these are health and wealth people. Of course, of course, they're going to say crazy crap when it comes to, you know, a pandemic because they believe that God will protect, you know, that God, if you are sick, you lack faith. And yep. I mean, I, I might be simplifying their point of view, but but in a nutshell, I mean, they say wacky stuff like that. And I, I, and I was just, I was amazed <laughs> to... To see these quotes and to see Cornwall lumped in there with them, I'm like, especially since you're a reform yeah. guy. Just, well, like, not only that, not only that, Shane, but I've actually written and taught against the whole health and wealth gospel movement. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I'm the one who calls them heretics. I'm, I'm not the only one. Basically, right. the whole evangelical world, the whole Protestant world, the whole Roman Catholic world, the whole Eastern Orthodox world calls these folks heretics. And then they get lumped in with us. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's even, even to the point where one of the pastors she quotes is a oneness Pentecostal. That is, he not only teaches health and wealth, name it and claim it, you know, right. uh, positive confession sort of gospel. Right. He also denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that means he's outside the bounds of Christianity as defined ever since the fourth century in the Nicene Creed, let alone the New Testament. But supposedly these guys represent the uh, the conservative evangelical response to the coronavirus that's that's nuts you know yeah. we can quote people from focus on the family from 
from uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, from D. James Kennedy Ministries, from uh, Family Research Council, from the American Center for Law and Justice, all of these uh, different organizations uh, have warned carefully about the coronavirus. Uh, pretty much all of them uh, rapidly embraced the call for shelter in place when it came out from various government authorities. Uh, they were doing very responsible things. She completely ignores them. Oh, this yeah. is, you know, this is the, the case of the kind of yellow journalism uh, that she's doing. This is a hit piece uh, filled with caricature, guilt by association, hasty generalization, <laughs> cherry picking, you know, of, of her evidence, uh, and just ignoring contra, uh, contrary evidence. Uh, this is so bad that as a former, uh, newspaper reporter, editor, and publisher myself, uh, I'd have thrown this thing in the trash can after getting through about the first two or three paragraphs. Right. Uh, and it's, it's just scandalous that the New York Times, which considers itself the newspaper of record, mm. would even publish a piece like this. This is not journalism. This is, this is trash. Well, and she she never really gets into what she has a problem with when it comes to President Trump's response to the coronavirus. I mean, there are some things I think he said on Twitter and and just off the cuff. I, I tell people this. Um, a lot of people know I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, and I'm still a Trump skeptic, even though I my positions probably change, has changed considerably, especially looking at who he's running against. Um, yeah, but I, I, that, that's neither here nor there, but, um, I, I say you got to look at Trump in two different ways, what he says off the cuff and what he tweets and what his policies actually are, um, because yeah. they're, they're generally not the same thing. Um, yeah, he, yeah, do, do as I do, not as I say, uh, and, yeah. you know, that's the crucial distinction is that the Trump administration's actual, uh, actions on this have generally been, I think, uh, quite good. Uh, certainly, in terms of the actual decisions made, he has been following the advice of his top scientific advisors. And she's claiming that he has just completely ignored them. The opposite is the case. Right. Yeah. I mean, if he was ignoring them, he wouldn't have extended the uh, the social distancing recommendation out to April 30th. Um Right. Now, now I, I think as a nation, we can say that we probably weren't well prepared for this. Um, and I think a lot of that has point to, to uh, Point me to the nation that was. Yeah, well, right, that's <laughs> Essentially, true. Essentially, can, you can point to Taiwan, but that's not fair because according to mainland China, Taiwan is not a nation. Right. Well, South Korea may have had the probably one of the better responses, um, mainly, I think, because they you know, they experienced with the, the swine flu in 2009. Right. You know, they, they've right. got a taste of this. So I think maybe they had some, some better policies in place, more of isolating those who are sick rather than, than having a, you know, uh, a, a, uh, an order that affected everybody. But, but that, you know, they also, they were wearing masks and, and they were doing things that, that we weren't doing. They also seem to have more tests. I'm not sure how they, were able to ramp up their testing capabilities so quickly. Um, but part of yeah. our problem, and 
it, it is initially we just didn't have you know we don't have enough tests to, to be able to take that approach now i i've seen people on on uh social media um conservatives who call this uh a the, you know covid-19 a hoax what are your thoughts on that those people are not only wrong but really irresponsible and to the extent that they're having any influence at all, and I think it's pretty slim, uh, they are putting a whole lot of people in danger. This is a very, very serious uh, uh, epidemic, pandemic, uh, and it will it will kill an awful lot of people. Um, whether it winds up killing terribly many more than the typical annual flu is yet to be seen. Um, there are there are arguments among the top professionals in epidemiology over that issue. Mm-hmm. But this is certainly a very, very uh, dangerous disease, yeah. uh, particularly for people who are either very elderly or have pre-existing conditions, uh, lung disease, heart disease, uh, uh, asthma, things of that sort, uh, let alone leukemia, for instance. Right. Um, but but it's for for people under say the age of sixty or fifty and in good health, uh, the actual uh, symptoms of this seem not to be worse uh, typically than a bad cold or a bad case of the flu. Yeah, um, I mean obviously there are cases where that's not the case, but in general I think that's that's right, and that's what we've right. been hearing. Right. And, and, you know, my people continually compare this to the flu. And I'm like, you know, first of all, what we've learned is that the mortality rate is likely higher. It's certainly more contagious. Um, The incubation rate is 14 days. So you could actually and there have been people who, you know, evidence that shows that people have been spreading this asymptomatically. Um, Right. And. You know, they, they keep on pointing to the numbers aren't as high as you know, the death rate isn't as high as what we've seen with the seasonal flu. And uh, I, I want to ask those people, are you taking into account all all the policies that everybody's implemented? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 very important. Uh, how much higher would they have been in the absence of those policies? And I think the answer to that is a good bit higher, <laughs> probably right. quite a lot higher. But of course, we don't know. I mean, as any logician will tell you, asking that question and then trying to answer it with any confidence is the commission of the fallacy of, of hypothesis contrary to fact. What would have happened if what didn't happen happened? Well, we don't know because what didn't happen didn't happen. Right. And, and, and we're never going to know. Yeah, and, this is, and, and unfortunately, right. you're, 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 go ahead. We, as you just said, we, we never will know. Um, we can have modeled comparisons, but uh, as one great physicist once said, all models are wrong. Some models are helpful <laughs> or useful, rather. Right. Uh, and and that is one of the things that has uh, concerned me a lot. Uh, as you know, um, in the whole climate change uh, fiasco, um, basically all of the fears of dangerous warming rapid warming um, of high magnitude, all of those fears rest 100% 
on what computer models of the climate uh, spit out. Uh, but of course, the old saying, "Gigo, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out, uh, holds right. true. Um, models models uh, can fail and fail disastrously. The actual observed uh, evidence regarding uh, global warming is that the warming rate has been, oh, anywhere from about a fourth to a half of what the models say. Well, that means that the models are wrong and they really give us no rational basis for any predictions about future temperature or any policies meant to respond to that. Well, in the same way, as I watched what was going on with the modeling of coronavirus, uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, I said to myself, look, um, the, uh, the, the general community, especially in the media, I think, lack the background in science to recognize that models are not the real world. Right. And we've already seen huge changes in some of the models, uh, some of those in how the models function and others in the data that are put into the models. Uh, the latter was the case, for instance, with the uh, uh, Imperial College London model that originally uh, simulated um, what was it, uh, 250,000 deaths in the UK and 2.5 million in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, they, they fed some new data into it just a few days later and came out and said, uh, no, actually, probably, and, and this was partly in light of the fact that Britain and the United States had uh, announced that they were going to be imposing very, very strict uh, social distancing uh, in many cases, stay-at-home orders. Right. Uh, in light of that, they fed the new data in, and they came out and said, well, for the UK, uh, it's likely to be under 20,000, and of that, over half are likely to be uh, deaths that are not actually driven by COVID-19, but rather by the underlying conditions. Uh, these would be people who would likely have died this year anyway because their age and their whether it's heart disease or lung disease, cancer, whatever. Right. Um, now, they didn't, they didn't give a new number for the United States, but that was a 96% cut for the right. UK. And since our, our policies have been pretty similar, you can expect something of a similar cut for the United States. So from you know, 2.5 million, knock off 96% of that, and that would give you roughly what they would come up for the U.S. after that. Well, they're saying about one one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand right now is what you know. I'm hearing from Doctor Fucci. Yeah. I think I think that's how you pronounce yeah. his name. Fauci. And Fauci. I think, by the way, I, I think by the way that that is probably going to turn out to be uh, worst case scenario. Probably. And in fact, Doctor Fauci has has spoken of it as if it were worst case scenario, uh, and uh, he's said in the in the briefings that you know, we're working at bringing those numbers down. I think we're working pretty successfully at bringing right. those numbers down. Um, and then partly, part of the reason I think that it's probably a worst case scenario is that it depends on what I'm pretty, pretty convinced are exaggerated death rates uh, in that uh, a, a lot of different studies, especially in Italy, uh, have shown that a large percentage 
of the people who are being listed as fatalities from COVID-19 are actually fatalities with COVID-19 rather than from. And the difference there is that uh, you know this person might have died of heart failure that he was really close to dying of anyway before right. he was infected of, uh, with COVID-19. And so uh, in Italy, uh, it appears that possibly as many as 80% of the deaths that have been attributed to COVID-19 might actually have been brought on within a few weeks to months by the underlying conditions had the people never gotten COVID-19 anyway. So I, I do think that the, the predictions of the total number of deaths in the United States are probably high. But of course, you know, all of them are, you know, things that we should mourn. I mean, death is right. the last enemy. It is, it is, not, <laughs> it is not our friend. Uh, and uh, every one of these deaths leaves people who are grieving the loss of their loved ones. And, and that's part of why I think it's, it's uh, a matter of our love to neighbor to do everything that we can uh, uh, within reason to, to, uh, you know, to curb the spread of the virus, to make sure that we are not carriers. And, and if we are infected, to make sure that we're not going to be around other people who can get infected from us. Uh, But at the same time, Shane, I I just want to raise uh, a a little bit of a different issue here. Um, And actually, I've just written a major article about it that I'm going to be looking for a publisher for. Uh, And that is uh, that economists for decades have been uh, doing a variety of studies on how many deaths can be attributed to a given loss of economic production in a given year, in a given economy. Uh, or in other words, uh, you know, what, is, what is the amount of economic loss to a society that generates one new statistical death? Now, we call that a statistical death because you can't put your finger on, oh, this person <laughs> died because of this. Uh, but you can see the very strong correlation between uh, loss to the economy and the death rate in a given year. And those studies find that uh, they they conclude anywhere from uh, about $10 million lost to the economy generates one new statistical death to $129 million. And I, I think uh, as you run those along with the the costs to our economy of the more the more extreme parts of our response, uh, I become very concerned that we could actually find that the war on corona the coronavirus winds up killing more people than the coronavirus itself. Uh, I think there's pretty strong uh, empirical evidence uh, and theoretical evidence combined mm-hmm. for that. And it's really kind of analogous to wars themselves. In, in World War I, um, the, the number of civilians killed exceeded the number of combatants by about 4%. In World War II, twice as many civilians were killed as combatants. Now, I don't think that uh, we're going to see twice as many killed uh, by economic loss in the coronavirus pandemic, uh, but uh, I would not be at all surprised if 
we continue the more extreme measures, the ones that have shut down so many businesses, and uh, that will have a ripple effect, by the way, through the economy. As various businesses are shut down, others that depend on them, uh, for instance, a, a dairy farmer friend of mine uh, has already told me, look, I have suppliers of equipment, of parts for equipment that have been shut down, and I've got a piece of equipment that has worn out. I need a part, and I can't get it. Right. But his dairy farm, you know, his dairy farm uh, puts out a couple of hundred thousand uh, 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 gallons of milk every day. You take that out of the local market, people are going to be having problems. So, you know, I, I do have concerns, and, and I think that before too long, we really need to cut back the more extreme measures, but keep the really good common sense ones, you know, social distancing, stay five feet away from people most of the time, unless you're really, you know, I mean, you're in the same family, same household. Right. Uh, you know, large gatherings and so on. I don't know how the Duggars do it right now. <laughs> our our family is yeah. is you know violating the law right now um so no i i yeah I, you're right i eventually some of these are some of these restrictions on businesses we, we're gonna have to it's not sustainable to do this long term i i i, yeah. I get in the short term especially as people weren't necessarily taking this seriously I, right. I, I, you know, I, I would not want to be a governor right now. I, I, I can't even imagine the immense pressure. Um, I, I've, uh, <laughs> I've criticized my particular governor, but I recognize I'm not questioning her motivation. Um, you know, I had some problems with, with, uh, orders against large groups, um, and against, uh, and things that, that infringe upon freedom of assembly and freedom of religion. On the other hand, yeah, I'm saying yeah. we should we should be doing this voluntarily, because out exactly. of out of yeah. love for neighbor, I just didn't necessarily want us to be compelled. On the other hand, while I have I, I think orders like these have some inherent constitutional problems, I also very I'm also very cognizant that um, I would likely, if I were to sue, I would lose in court, just because I think the government could say we have a compelling pub you know government or there's a compelling public interest here. Um, yeah, um, but see, uh, Andrew Napolitano recently had an article in which he actually discussed this very, this very kind of issue. And what he points out is that when a government wants to force someone to be kept in isolation, uh, by law, in every single case, it can't say, okay, this zip code, everybody has to stay home, <laughs> or this county, everybody has to stay home. Rather, for every individual, there has to be due process of law. The government has to prove before a court that this person, regardless of whether he intends to or not, uh, constitutes a uh, significant threat to, to others unless he is kept uh, in quarantine. Right. That has been completely ignored in this. And, and Shane, you know, I... I have a lot of hopefulness, a lot of optimism about the American people in general, uh, which, which I, I hope is justified. Uh, and yet I do believe that one of our big challenges coming out of all of this is going to be rest restoring a robust 
respect for and compliance with our constitutional rights by our various different levels of government. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I, you know, it's this is this this, this uh, epidemic, this pandemic is is going to sh- you know change a lot. I think um, with our society and how we function. And I'm my fear Absolutely. is yeah, my fear is orders like these will just make it easier and easier to do it more often and more often for other things as well. Yeah. I I hope yeah. I I really hope that's unfounded, but I don't. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. Um, but again, you know, I'm, I, I will say that, you know, I, I think these governors were in a difficult spot and I'm thinking they're, especially with the lack of testing, you know, I'm not yeah. sure what else they could have done. Um, especially when you got knuckleheads that are, you know, crowding beaches and crowding into restaurants and totally ignoring, you know, medical advice. It's like. Can we just do what we're supposed to be doing, everybody? That way, they don't have to or- make do these orders. Um, that yeah. way, we're not putting them in a box. So, yeah. Well, uh, there's an old Arab curse: "May you live in interesting times." <laughs> I think we all definitely are living in a very interesting time here. Uh, one of the things that I that I think about this is that uh, we really need to have more different uh, fields of expertise uh, listened to carefully about this by our decision makers, by our our governing officials. Uh, So far, it's been almost entirely the medical epidemiological community that has been advising our leaders. And, you know, if you've got a hammer, Everything looks like a nail. Uh, but I, I really think that we need uh, a lot more uh, input from economists, especially economists who have, in fact, studied deeply into the question of the mortality rates that come from economic de- decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need a lot more uh, input from business leaders. We need a lot more input from, uh, from pastors frankly, giving moral uh, counsel to their flocks and beyond their flocks, precisely to address the kind of people that you just (laughs) referred to, the knuckleheads who are cavorting on the beaches, uh, spreading the infection, uh, just ignoring the fact that, okay, so I'm 25 years old, and if I get infected, the odds of it's doing anything worse to me than bad flu are very, very low. Right. Nonetheless, if I get infected, I can sp- send it on to somebody who's not that way and can cause that person to die 10 years earlier than he otherwise would. Yeah. Right? It's ama- a matter it, of love of neighbor. Yeah. And it's amazing that, you know, uh, people who are totally depraved act selfishly. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, surprising. Surprise. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So. It, it, it'll be interesting to see what what happens, you know, from here. I've I, I, I've kind of wondered about how how businesses will be changed as a result of this too. I'm thinking a lot of businesses yeah. are going to learn that, hey, you know, a lot of things that we do can be done remotely. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking we're going to probably see yeah. more of that. Um, I hope we're going to see a huge surge in homeschooling 
Yes, that's another <laughs> so thing, too. Parents, <laughs> so many parents are having to have their kids home for a long period uh, when they normally are in school, and many of them may be figuring out, you know what? We could do well, this. Two or three hours a day of investing in my child's, uh, you know, just guiding him in what he reads and things like that. My child can learn more than he was doing in eight hours a day in the public schools. Yeah, I don't. Uh, so that's I don't, a good, good possibility. I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand how much what's done in, in school is busy work. Um, oh, yeah. Tremendous waste. Right. Uh, so, you know, uh, just not even, not even asking the simple question uh, who in his right mind ever thought it made any sense whatsoever to entrust to the government the shaping of the minds of the people by whose consent it's supposed to govern. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, you, let, you let the government determine what people are taught and dissent uh, just disappears. Uh, the whole idea of government by consent of the governed becomes vacuous, empty uh, when you do that. And eventually, uh, I'm hoping that Americans will figure out two things. One, education in a warehouse in mass numbers is crazy. Mm -hmm. And two, education by the state is incompatible with long-term liberty. Right. Well, hey, Cal, it's, it's, it's been a great conversation. We're, we're past a half hour. So I'm going to, I think, I think we'll wrap this up. Um, I'll have to have you back on again uh, soon, and, and you got a piece in The Federalist. Why don't you go ahead and plug that real quick, and I'll be sure I include yeah, uh, that in the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate that. The, uh, the piece uh, ran on uh, Tuesday, and uh, let's see here. I will have it in front of me in just a moment here. The title is New York Times ignores the evidence to slander Christians as coronavirus deniers. Uh, we will have a copy of that piece up on the blog at cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org, uh, either today or tomorrow. And I think your, your listeners will enjoy reading that as well as getting acquainted with more that the Cornwall Alliance does. Great. So when they come, I hope they'll also subscribe to our email newsletter. They can just do that by uh, you know, signing up for updates and putting in their email address. Sounds great. Well, hey, thank you so much, and uh, stay well. Thank you, Shane. You too. God bless. God bless you too. Bye-bye. And that concludes today's episode of the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you happen to be listening somewhere other than on our website, please be sure to check out caffeinatedthoughts.com. Again, that's caffeinatedthoughts.com. Or you could just Google Caffeinated Thoughts at the top of your search screen. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, sign up for emails. That way you don't miss a single update. You can also check us out on your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. If there's another app that we're not on that you would like to see us on, uh, please uh, drop me a line at shane at caffeinatedthoughts.com. And I'll work to see if I can make that happen. Until next time, my friends, take care, stay safe, practice social distancing, wash your hands, cover your cough, yada, yada. Uh, stay healthy. Until next time, take care. Bye.